Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, European Rate Strategist, and I'm joined today by our Global Market Specialists, Giles Gale, Theo Chaps-Alice and John Bruzzi. Before getting into our latest discussion today, I just wanted to quickly remind you to hit the subscribe button so you can listen to our latest episodes as soon as they're available. All right, Dan, I'm going to kick off with you this week because um, we're recording fresh off uh, US inflation print. It's literally like one, well, 141. So you've had 10 minutes to digest the news. So perhaps it's a bit unfair that I'm going to first. Um, But nonetheless, we had a strong inflation number today, coupled with um, a relatively an above consensus um, NFP print last Friday that also had revisions upwards to past numbers. Are those two things together enough to kind of change your outlook for the Fed? And do you think that this could be a could imply a faster than expected taper? Yeah, just to address the data first, the inflation number, it, it is it is strong, despite the market trading the, the CPI fixing slightly higher than what the uh, Bloomer consensus was. It's still at 0.9 percent. Uh, it, it is a it is a powerful print. And I'm just going over, like you said, it was 10 minutes ago. So I'm just going over the the breakdowns versus you know what what delivered more than what you know what was uh, market expectations. And I gotta say, I mean, it is it is relatively broad based. Food was high from the headline side. Food was much higher than expected, and in, even in the core, like rent is sticking higher. Uh, the shelter components they're staying higher. So, but even outside of that, I mean, pretty much all categories were. Uh, higher than uh, uh, you know what was envisioned so it seems like the 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 cpi number is becoming a little bit more broad-based rather than just driven by a couple of categories of course the culprits like uh new cars used cars they're still contributing a decent amount and they did even more than the generous expectations but still uh it, it is spilling over from the job side again it was a it was a above consensus number like you said uh it is a very strong number the revisions were very strong and those all two point to the Fed moving faster. But I have a caveat here, which is, uh, I think we, we should see more sustainable, you know, a couple of uh, re- repeating prints instead of jumping and saying, well, we had one strong jobs, jobs number, the Fed's going to act because that's kind of like the weak link, uh, weak link within, their, within their mandate. And now with the CPI number, they might go in December. I think we have another number well, for both for jobs and CPI before the next FOMC meeting. So we'll get another chance to, uh, we'll get another chance to reevaluate then. I think the market is justified to react the way it did, you know, sending break-evens higher, sending front-end yields higher, just pricing in a uh, faster Fed reaction function. Uh, but I think there's going to be another hurdle right before the December meeting with the same, uh, same data sets that we got today uh, and, and last week with jobs and CPI. So, so I'll be looking forward to them, but I, I wouldn't say go ahead and fade the market just because it is a very reasonable reaction. The curve flattening the way it is, the market pricing the way it is. And if we get something similar or even slightly weaker uh, next month, I'd say there's a very realistic chance the Fed indicates they might pick up the pace starting next year. That all makes sense. So. I guess sticking with the Fed, you know, last time we spoke was just after the meeting, um, but, you know, until then, Fed speakers had, had been in the blackout period. So is there anything additional that we've learned from any Fed speakers since they've come out of the blackout period and, and after last week's meeting? 
my main takeaway from this week's speakers was the Hawks kind of, you know, talked about like the hawkish views that they had, for example, Bullard saying he has two hikes in for next year. We already knew that. But for me, what was a, some, a bit of new information was uh, more dovish members like Dali, Kashkari uh, coming out and saying, you know, inflation has been more uncertain than what we expected. It has persisted longer than we expected. They still, uh, go with the narrative that it will is likely to subsu uh, subdue next year, but still they are acknowledging the uncertainty around inflation. I think confirmations coming from that camp of the FOMC basically kind of uh, guarantees us that it is consensus view within the committee that they, there's a there's a lot more about inflation that we don't know and about the outlook about the inflation we don't know. So I guess rounding off the discussion about the Fed, this week is also or potentially key in terms of finding out about um, the chairperson. Um, can you perhaps run us through your base case view on that? And just for listeners, you know, we're recording this on Wednesday. Uh, by the time you listen, we may well know who uh, the next chairperson is. Um, and so I guess perhaps, Jan, within what you say, you could more focus on around how, if at all, we think this may well change the Fed's reaction function. Yeah, like you said, I can get fact-checked on this very quick, even before publication. So, so my, uh, my view on that is, at this point, it is widely accepted that the competition is between Brainard and Powell. There were headlines that they both went to the White House separately to be uh, discuss the position of the Fed chairperson with President Biden. So with Powell, we, we sort of know what we get. And just to start from the beginning, I think Powell remains as the Fed chairman uh, because a, he had, he's a good continuity candidate. He has been supportive of uh, what democratic policies were and would have been, I would imagine, throughout the COVID. He's been very, you know, he hasn't been a hawkish uh, Fed chairman whatsoever, I would say. Um, and he's just an easy candidate. And we haven't really heard rumors until now that he would be replaced from the White House. No leaks, nothing that would indicate something's coming. You know, there's like thoughts of uh, pushing him away. On the other hand, uh, Brainard is certainly a more dovish candidate. And there has been some pushback on that view as well. But I think just going over the speeches that she has given recently too, she has been a lot more centered on the full employment mandate. So of course, uh, the, naturally the market would interpret that as rate hikes have to go for next year, they, they have to price them out of the curve because to achieve that full employment within all demographic groups, it's going to take much longer than uh, the next year, even though we might hit like a headline unemployment number that is uh, that is lower and that is similar to pre-pandemic levels. So if if we get uh, brain out as the next Fed chairperson, then I would, I mean, the market would pretty surely take out a lot of the rate hike pricing from the front end of the curve, front end of the curve, and assume that we're likely to not see any, we're not uh, see liftoff next year. There could still be volatile markets for a few yeah. weeks. Yeah. All right, then, Giles, <clears throat> let's talk about the euro area because, um, you know, what well, we've talked about this quite a few times on this podcast, the, the market moves that we've had over the last few weeks. But since the Bank of England last week, we've seen continued flattening of the curve. Um, what's been going on there? You know, why are long end uh, euro rates or, or long end German curve close to being negative again? 
you know, I, I mean, I, I think we do know, and I, I don't think it's been a mystery for the last few weeks what's been going on. Um, it's really just been a question of how long it was going to continue. And that is that people, you know, I mean, there, there, there were many investors who were, in a sense, you know, positioned traditionally in the right way, trying to express a view that has broadly been validated by, by data, but which um, has not really been, you know, the, the, the obvious sort of way to express that, which is via curve steepeners and being short in fixed income in the long end, looking for higher rates at the long end, um, you know, has has been exceptionally frustrating. And, you know, why is that? Well, I suppose, you know, um, if enough people with a relatively short-term perspective, um, you know, possibly already having suffered um, during the year, uh, coming to the end of the year, and you know, they're all you know, positioned in a similar way, then they're is going to be a significant um, difficulty when everyone tries to do the same thing and reduce risk at the same time. Um, obviously, the uh, the ECB and um, uh, continuing to buy lots of bonds, and uh, and I guess the the end of the year is a little bit less um, heavy on the supply side anyway. Um, now, so these are all factors that you no know, possible. Well, I I would I would expect are the main the main drivers um does that mean that we anticipated it no does it mean that we anticipated the whatever it was 10 basis points rally in 30 year um on germany yesterday absolutely not i mean it's coming back it's correcting a little bit today um no, i think that the that, that there was a a U.S. auction yesterday, which you know, didn't go all that well, which you know, maybe opens the question as to whether you know, when when there's more liquidity on offer, whether there's you know, whether there's that weight of demand really um, at those points. Um, and we'll see again today with the U.S. 30 year, but it's been exceptionally acute in, in euros, and it's you no, know, I know. I, I don't think that we can really say that it's finished, to be honest with you. Um, it may well have been. You know, I, I do remember in, in the summer, you know, it's worth just remembering that we had a, very, you know, a brutal July, but then things kind of stabilised in, in August as, you know, I don't remember, maybe it was a sort of bit of a tense, uh, a tense equilibrium, but I, I, can, I can also see that we might just um, you know, enter uh, that kind of a phase for, for the next six weeks. Although, of course, we do have stuff going on. I mean, it's not just um, a race down towards uh, Thanksgiving and closing down risk. That you know that we do have the uh, the ECB in in December, for example, and that is a pretty significant event. Yeah, I guess that nicely brings me on to my next question. Then, you know, that was a lot about the long end of the curve and what's been going on, but. Some interesting moves at the front end as well. What, what's your view of what's happening there? Right. So, I mean, I think it's I think it's just part of the same effect. Um, at the end of the at the end of the year, there's often excess demand for euro collateral, and there are always a number of possible explanations for for that. You know, one of them is, for example, year-end demand for dollars, paradoxically, because um, you know, what often happens is that um, you know, 
that that the extra demand for for dollars eventually gets satisfied and via the FX forward markets. It's a bit of a complicated and a bit of a technical um, situation, but uh, the the people who fulfil that demand then need somewhere safe to to park the euros that they're lending. Um, uh, I don't think that that's it. I think we would have already seen it. Um, it's noticeable to me that we had now that this has really taken off since the beginning of this month. And I think you know, it, it, it appears to have gone hand in hand with the with the stress in um, in, in in the curve overall. So my my top hypothesis for that is really it's just people looking for the lowest duration, lowest risk assets in euros and essentially it's it's a bid for euro cash and just somewhere safe to park your money over the uh, over the next couple of months um, before doing something with it next year maybe just thinking back again to the ecb which you mentioned before because i guess in europe that's the kind of next risk event which i guess similar question to you to what i asked jan do you think that we've learned anything new over the last couple of weeks from these speakers i guess probably this week the most notable speech was from schnabel um talking a lot about um asset purchases and, and the kind of sequencing of rate hikes what what's your take on what she said Right, so she had a long speech yesterday, actually, that would, I mean, long, I suppose, average by her standards, but no, long, long nonetheless. But what she was talking about was the, the sort of the impact of uh, the ECB's policies on equity. I suppose equity in the sense, not equity markets, but equity in the sense of. Um, is it, are they making the rich get richer? Are they making the poor get poorer? Are they are, are there a cause of inequality um, getting uh, becoming uh, more acute in in, in Europe and, um, no, and 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 things like that? Okay, so it was a quite wide ranging speech, but essentially she seemed to it, it, for me she seemed to accept to a greater degree than perhaps we're used to from um, for, from policymakers that um, at least on the wealth side there maybe is a case to to, to answer and you know while on the you know, on, on, on the sort of labor income side they've actually been relatively helpful but you know, the bottom line conclusion really seemed to be a doubling down on this idea that sequencing really is important. They have to stop QE before they start raising rates. And that is something that we've come back to again and again and again in investor discussions and also on this podcast. Um, People who like the flattening theme um, tend often also to like the idea that maybe the ECB might find a way of raising rates whilst keeping QE going. And that absolutely wasn't the message from um, from from Schnabel yesterday so that was um, I, I guess the first thing but the other one was really just a, you know, a, a pretty clear focus on uh, trying to reduce asset purchases and so you know, I think that that you know, I mean is you know, that's going to be the dominant theme for the next few quarters no doubt at all and I think and, and if I if I can just conclude by saying I think that's also 
know, supported by the read from the economic data recently. I mean, we've you know, already been talking quite a lot about the US inflation um, situation, which you know, seems to be you know, higher inflation for longer. Um, you know, that, I think, is borne out in most other developed markets as well. And the economic growth data has been okay. I mean, we had a decent survey out from Japan yesterday. The recent surveys from the euro area have also been pretty strong recently. Um, in the US, they've been all right. So, you know, overall, I don't really see where this sort of policy mistake, um, no panic, um, no stagflation, no stuff is all is, is, is all coming from it doesn't seem to be tracking that way it seems much more traditional reflation um you know, and i think that does eventually mean higher rates steeper curves but you know with the we, we've already been over all the caveats at the start of my, of my comment i guess that's probably one thing that sets europe apart from you know other regions is that this kind of stronger fundamentals means that it's all about tapering rather than rate hikes in Europe um, and hopefully hopefully like you say that brings about deeper curves all right then Theo over to you um, although I'm very excited not to be talking about the Bank of England this week because it feels like we've been talking about them every week for the last I don't know how many weeks um, so let's talk about something a little bit different today and think about UK issuance um, there's a syndication coming up in uh, two weeks time so can you give us your thoughts on on that kind of issuance event so our expectation is that on the 23rd of November the DMO will launch for around a billion cash that's called it around four billion sorry one billion nominal around four billion cash uh, will issue a new linker that's going to be a neutral long bond so this bond, um, the maturity of the bond has been decided as of March 2073. Uh, it is a topic that we discussed earlier in the year in August. We've published a piece where we looked at valuations. So this is this, this is very exciting because the DMO they are responding to investor demand, and there is there is investor demand for inflationing paper. It's another story whether the demand is for ultra logs. It's it's a separate topic, but there is definitely demand for uh, inflationing paper. So I think it is something quite significant from a duration point of view. About sixty percent of the duration that you get in a quarter, you may get that just from uh, you know from one bond. So it is a pretty big deal, and it is a big deal both for linkers but also for the conventional market. So this goes very well with the story that Giles mentioned before, which is the flattening of curves. And what we've seen in the UK is also a relentless flattening of curves. But there is a reason for it, and, and the reason is really the lack of video one. So we had obviously, uh, you know, after the remit, a cut in long guilds, and then also, you know, we're not getting that much linkers, even with an ultra long. So if investors need to get duration, well, they will flatten the curves, and this is what has been happening. So we think that this is a significant event. Uh, it's definitely something that we uh, keep a close um, eye on. And, um, you know, it will be the biggest linker on the curve and it will be, to the best of my knowledge, also the biggest linker across developed markets. So it's going to be the longest in terms of maturity. It will, it will be the longest uh, uh, DM linker. So how does this change your view then, I guess, of, of long end linkers? You know, um, we've seen break evens kind of narrow um, over the last couple of trading sessions. Uh, and now we're going to get this big duration of that. Does that change what you think about the direction of travel of, of long-end break-evens? I think 
the um, one point that we need to make is that in terms of issuance composition, um, the DMO chose to cut issuance from longs and allow some linker issuance. And that had implication for break-evens. There are other reasons that had also implications for break-evens, but that has been quite significant. And this is why we've seen the break-even narrowing. And we've seen a significant positioning uh, into break-evens. And we've had a view and we've been supportive of wider break-evens. This is something where we're getting uh, you know, some uh, headwind. Uh, but to be fair, what we also see is that we are reaching levels where break-evens, specifically linkers, they look attractive. They look attractive from, you know, from a, from a long-term valuation point of view. They look attractive versus uh, inflation derivatives. They look attractive in many, in many ways. And also even during way days that you would expect uh, break-evens to be weak, break-evens are actually not so weak. So we maintain the same view. Uh, we like uh, long and break-evens. And we think that this is a theme uh, that we definitely want to run into the syndication. What about your views in nominals then? Because you've had this call um, for the last couple of weeks for gilts to um, outperform bonds and treasuries on the fly. Do you still like that? Is it still a trade that we're in? So th there's been two catalyst moments for the trade. One is the remit and the significant retaggeture with regards to gilts. The other one was the BOE call. And um, I know that we promised not to talk about the BOE, but it is still relevant. This is why we need to bring it up. So those two points and the non-reinvestment, or to be fair, the non-reinvestment theory about that bond in March that is getting challenged, i.e. the reinvestment of that maturing bond, that is supportive for gilts. Now, in the very few sessions, there's been, yes, some uh, selling of gilts. And I mean, it is a view that moved by 40 basis points. Yes, okay. As of now, it is up by 30 basis points. Do we still like it? Absolutely. Because we think that the story of low net DV1 in the UK can still play out, i.e. we will have days when there may be some cheapening of gilts, but we think that with a bit of buying, the scarcity of paper can get the asset class to squeeze and become a lot richer quite faster. So we do like these dynamics. We think that the market still believes that it will get a lot of DV1 from the linker syndication, which it will be a big number. It's, it's going to be between 20 and 25 million a basis point. It is a big number. We don't challenge that. However, after that, and when we look at the December schedule or early next year, the DVR profile looks particularly low, in which case we think that Gills will have a great opportunity to shine, especially versus other fixed income assets. That makes sense. All right. Thank you, Thea. I think that's probably all we've got time for today. Uh, so thank you everyone for joining me. And I just wanted to remind our listeners that if you like today's episode, please hit the like button and don't forget to subscribe so you can listen to our latest episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks everyone. Speak next week. Bye.